I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello and welcome back to the show where we're always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network. Mark and Mark, Daly and Hamilton, here to talk about what we love to talk about each and every week, and that is Formula One. And Mark, it has been a busy, crazy week. It's been an off-season like no other. And, uh, well, I I guess we could pick almost any story that we wanted to, and we'll get into that. But uh, first of all, how's it going this week? You, you You look like you've had a busy day. I, you know, I'm sure you have as well. And, and it's funny, I think as, a, as our relationship ha- has grown, we've begun communicating more and more via um, social media and WhatsApp and things like that. And there were some things, I won't get into the specifics to bore our non-Canadian listeners, but there were some things that happened in Canadian sports media this week mm. that uh, obviously upset a lot of people, including us. So that was, uh, as, as sad as it may sound, that was a bit of a bonding opportunity for yes. you and I to kind of... <laughs> To kind of like lean into a common a common pursuit, but but yeah, busy um, and bu- work is busy, and, and you know it's crazy too because we say this every single week, and and I want to sound sincere, but there's just so much going on in the world of Formula One in the off season. It's crazy, and usually you get these kind of six to eight weeks where things kind of calm down a little bit, and that the drivers are in training and the factories are busy. But there's just been so much this season, and it's interesting. I was talking to a friend the other day that works in a social media analytics company and he was talking about the fact that historically formula one impressions like social media formula one impressions drop off a cliff right after the last race and oftentimes even before that especially if the championships decided sure if the championships decided two or three races before the end of the season uh social media impressions they, they drop off a cliff and they really don't start ramping up again until closer to the season so about the time that the car, new cars are being introduced and his point was that the analysis that do, they're doing now suggests that that drop-off doesn't really happen in the formula one off season that there's enough going on and that there's enough interest that it continues to stimulate the conversation at least on social media so possibly something for liberty to look at in terms of continuing to engage and capitalize on this interest in the sport but i thought that was interesting but then again you kind of reflect on you know what you and I've been talking about the past two or three weeks or months. It's just that there's so many interesting topics to talk about to drive that conversation forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very interesting too. I mean, last weekend obviously was the Super Bowl, arguably the biggest sporting weekend right. in the entire calendar year. And uh, I've noticed um, just uh, going back and looking at the stats for this show that there's always a dip around the Super Bowl. And 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 logically so, considering number one, it's the Super Bowl and number two, it's Formula One offseason. But I would say that th- this past week or two has only been a slight dip in our in our normal, uh, you know, uh, amount of downloads and listens and things like that, which is extremely encouraging for this time of year. And there really hasn't been too much of a, a change in the listenership or the viewership for those uh, watching on YouTube since the end of the season. I find that uh, remarkable. But when you have headlines like we have today on the 11th of February, Fernando Alonso getting hit by a car. Why would you not be interested in Formula One? And uh, we might as well start there, Mark. 
Yeah, you know, I'm going to let you take this one away because I'm going to get worked up a little bit about this. But I I hadn't actually read the headline until you fired this one over to me on social media. And I think the first thing that struck me was, and and you know what, even before I, I determined whether he was safe or not was just like, what was the guy doing on a bike? You know what? That was my my first comment was, what was he doing on a bike? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I mean, if you look on uh, Instagram and things like that uh, during the off season, a lot of these guys are on their bikes uh, for fitness. And I'm a cyclist myself. It's great. But, you know, I'm a weekend warrior. And, uh, you know, Fernando has uh, a long love affair with cycling. And you just know the way that Fernando is that uh, he's not going about uh, for a leisurely pedal around there. You know that he's going to be uh, he's going to be on the top kit. He's going to be out there just giving his, uh, you know, 110%. But I don't know the the exact uh, you know details of what happened. This was uh, reported earlier today by Gazzetta dello Sport from Italy saying that he was uh, hit uh, near uh, Lugano in Switzerland. When he was out on a training uh, ride. Uh, he was taken to the hospital. Uh, he said he's conscious and uh, apparently well in himself, uh, whatever that means. And Alpine had uh, released a statement. I'm just going to, to read for it. And they said, quote, Alpine F1 team can confirm that Fernando Alonso has been involved in a road accident while cycling in Switzerland. Fernando is conscious and well in himself and awaiting further medical examinations tomorrow morning. Alpine F1 team will not make any further statement at this point in time. Further updates will be given tomorrow, end quote. So, you know, obviously this is a huge thing. We're now, what, six weeks out from the start of the reason, or sorry, start of the season in Bahrain, uh, end of March. And uh, we're literally just around the corner from from testing, uh, just uh, only uh, a couple to several weeks away. This, you know, depending on the nature of the injuries, I mean, there's been some conflicting reports uh, circulating around social media since uh, this uh, story broke uh, about lunchtime Pacific time today that uh, perhaps uh, they'd suffered some uh, fractures, uh, but that is yet to be uh, confirmed. So, you know, come, you know, tomorrow morning here on the West Coast of, uh, you know, North America, hopefully we'll have some details. But regardless if it's a couple of scrapes or if it's something more serious, like a fracture to whatever, this is a major blow to Fernando's comeback because even if he's out of the, the, the training rotation, even for, say, a week or several days, that is going to be, you know, that's going to set him back in his preparations for the season. He's been out of the sport for a couple, well, he hasn't been out of racing, he's been out of F1 for a couple of years. This is nothing short than a major setback to his comeback, you know, points, end points. Absolutely. And, and I'll just add as well, just moments ago, uh, Tim Haraney retweeted a tweet from Andrew Benson. Um, Andrew Benson is reporting that he is hearing from sources close to Alonzo that he has a broken jaw and will be taken to Bern, Switzerland, where there are further specialists available to evaluate <laughs> his condition. So Great. to your yeah. point, like fortunately, and, and it was interesting too, because um, Alpine and all of the, the, the kind of the, the organizations close to Alonzo were reporting that he's conscious. He's conscious. Like really, like I, I, I never even thought to think that he was in a condition where that needed to be reported. But by all accounts, it's, it's obviously not great. Um, I think there's every reason and I don't want to be too speculative, but if he does have fractures and he has a broken jaw, I don't know how quickly you can get him into a Formula One car. Like my assumption would be, especially for a 40 year old driver, that recovery is going to be key and that recovery is not necessarily going to be, to be quick, but you're, you're absolutely right that, that Alpine Renault built and strategized on this format for this year to have that Akon Alonso pairing, and then all of that is thrown into disarray. And I think to clarify my comment from a couple of minutes ago as well, I think 
I, I, my, my assumption has always been, and I think it's probably different with cycling, but I think typically if you are a major league sports team or you are a Formula One team and you are signing a driver to a high dollar contract, typically you put stipulations in that contract. Like it's well established that NFL players and NBA players and major league baseball players and NHL players don't get to go anywhere near a snowmobile or a motorbike. It's just too dangerous. And you know what? If you do that, there are all kinds of clauses in your contract that can kick in and you can jeopardize a significant amount of money. I don't think that's any different in the world of Formula One, but I think to your point, um, and we've talked about this before as well, that Formula One drivers condition, especially core and cardio, 12 months of the year. And I think to your point as well, road cycling is a huge, huge, huge part of that. And Alonso's not the only one that that competes competitively and puts in high mail, high mileage rides. Um, but I think for me, it was just like, it seemed like a really risky endeavor and that this is one of those possibilities. But again, I don't know how often this type of thing happens. So it's probably not fair for me to weigh the risk. But again, yeah, absolutely. Very, very, very disruptive to that team. And, and to be honest, I, I don't even know. And it's terrible that we're talking about this, but mm-hmm. I don't even know who could potentially fill that seat for him if required um, and for how long. So, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, now you're just saying that, uh, you know, that tweet that Andrew Benson had just uh, put out uh, not so long ago, just about uh, possibly a broken jaw, is just, uh, you know, never mind about getting back into the car, but, uh, you know, when they put those helmets on, those are very snug, so I can't imagine, that, you know, it might be, say, a little bit different, to, you know, with the, say if it was a finger or something like that, maybe you're able to splint that or reinforce it somehow so he can still get in, you know, hold the steering wheel and, uh, you know, change the gears and things like that, but uh, the, the jaw that will be a major one and yeah to your point who are they going to put that uh, into that car now i mean they do have some you know drivers in their system but is there anybody really you know available to uh, you know to jump in that car i'm, I'm sure right now nico hulkenberg's just sitting there you know we're <laughs> uh, w- waiting for the phone to ring as a yeah, guys i'm here and of course uh, you know he's familiar with that team i mean not being too far removed and he was a substitute driver extraordinaire in 2020 having that, right. done that job he might be the logical answer you know should it come to uh, say a worst case scenario that Fernando is going to miss some or a significant portion to the start of the year because you know he, he's got this injury uh, to to get over and and rehab and recover from. But just going back to your point, just about a, a clause in the contract. I'm going back 20, 25 years, and I seem to recall back in the 90s when Damon Hill was the guy at Williams in his World Championship days, and uh, you know in in the mid 90s, that uh, I believe he had a clause in his contract that prevented him from getting on a motorcycle at at, at that time. So, you know, don't quote me on that. I'm just going purely from my, my very poor memory, but I, I'm pretty sure it has been done before. But, uh, you know, it, it it might be very hard with, with a guy, especially of uh, Fernando's outspoken and, you know, you know combative nature. I, I think, you know, when it comes to things, you know, he's going to do what he wants to regardless uh, of what it is. And if he doesn't like it, I'm sure he'd find a way to strike that fine print out of a, uh, out of a contract. But yeah, it just seems it's unfortunate. And it just seems like one of those things that, you know, probably shouldn't happen, but you know, accidents right. are accidents, and it's just uh, it, it's unfortunate. And and yeah, I think he's been one of those stories that we're we're all looking towards uh, for for this year to see. You know, how is forty year old Fernando Alonso going to do in Formula One during his comeback? So, who knows if that's going to be put off uh, for the time being or not? 
I'll just, I'll add one thing. And I always seem to have something to add, despite the fact that you tend to wrap things up very tidily. <laughs> but uh, many years ago, um, I used to play a lot of competitive soccer and I, I had a very similar broken jaw and I took a knee as a goaltender. Um, the worst part wasn't even necessarily the break and the swelling and the surgery. It was the concussions. Um, yeah. That was the worst part. So fingers crossed, fingers crossed, there's no concussions here because again, I'm not super familiar with Formula One's concussion protocol, yeah. but the, re- the reality is a concussion could be much more disruptive to getting his season back on track than a broken jaw. You know what I mean? The other thing I'll add to, and this is just kind of a little bit humorous, but I was browsing Reddit a little bit earlier today and somebody had made the same observation that you did which is you know what Nico Hulkenberg had a stellar year last year in the opportunities that he had and somebody had made a comment on Reddit that Nico Hulkenberg is lurking and then somebody <laughs> else had followed that up with Nico Lurkenberg and I got I got I got such a such a lame kick out of that and in light of what's happening we shouldn't be joking but I did think that was quite cute yeah that's so uh, you know those are the, those things that I always think of after the fact you know sometimes you know we, we sit down to do the podcast and like our or sometimes days later, I sit there like, "Oh, that would have been so clever if I could have just said that in uh, you know right. in, in in the heat of the moment." But I guess there's uh, you know people that are much sharper and better at these things that, that, than I am. But hey, Mark, we're, we're getting close to our, our first break, but uh, we, we'd be a little bit in dereliction of duty if we didn't at least start this uh, discussion because what should be the big news of the week and was uh, until uh, this uh, story about Fernando broke uh, earlier today is the fact after all these weeks and months of speculation, Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton finally announced that they'd reached a deal earlier this week. But, and the big but here, is that it's only a one-year deal. Now, this, uh, we, we've had, uh, you know, we, we've talked about uh, quite a bit between ourselves, but uh, I must admit that I'm very surprised by this. Now, the way that they're framing it is that this is kind of a, a way to bridge the gap with the, the aim to, you know, have the longer negotiations and get a longer deal in place at some point in the future, which I suppose that it does. But I think it sets up or asks a whole bunch of other questions. I, I think it, it it asks more questions than it answers. And, and I, I know you feel the same way about this as I do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I will give Toto credit. Toto is very, very good at a couple of things. One, he's very calm. He's very articulate. And, and I think a lot of times he's very, very good at calming, uh, supporters of the Mercedes team. And, and he kind of honed those skills in 2014, 15, 16 when he was kind of, kind of weighing the battle between Nico and Lewis. But I, I, I completely agree. I was, I was, not devastated, but I was shocked mm-hmm. at the one-year deal. And and I can absolutely understand where Toto was coming from in terms of his explanation. And I also appreciated that he gave a little bit of context to the the runway and the pathway of the negotiation. He was pretty clear that, hey, collectively, we decided that we wouldn't necessarily negotiate during the season. It was a compressed season. The COVID situation, it, it wasn't necessarily appropriate. We'd initially intended to start talking in Bahrain, Lewis got sick. We didn't get the opportunity to start speaking until Christmas. So I think maybe there's this expectation throughout the season that these talks were happening. But by the end of January, the the social media world and the Formula One press was just buzzing. Why isn't this done? Why isn't this done? Why isn't this happening? And then all these kind of rumors and things like this were coming out. But his explanation ultimately is that this is just, and I think you put it perfectly, it's a bridge to 2022. And that we're not totally clear on what 2022 looks like, but this just gives us a bridge. And for me, you know, I, I trust Toto and, and I can't imagine that he would be intentionally misleading people, but he is also responsible for a organization worth hundreds of millions of pounds. 
I, I just, I think there's more to it than that. And I don't know what it is, but I don't think Lewis wanted a one-year deal. I just, I can't see a, a driver in his mid-30s at this stage in his career, accepting the security that comes with a one-year deal versus a one or a two or three-year deal. And if you wanted a bridge deal, why not do that one-year deal with a driver option? Mm -hmm. And you know what? You have this kind of handshake agreement, a gentleman's agreement that, hey, we'll give you the security of two years. You opt out after one if everything goes smoothly and we can renegotiate something bigger. It just, it seems risky to me that Lewis was willing to sign up for a one year deal in terms of security. Like what, what we, we and I want to hear your initial thoughts, but what were your initial thoughts when you saw that headline? And then as you processed it more and more, were you able to reconcile why he would have done this? Well, I've got a lot of thoughts on that, and I'm going to tease it now because uh, I, I think that this is a big conversation that we're going to need to have. So I think what we'll do is, uh, first of all, we're going to take our very first break here, and we'll come back, and we'll pick apart this whole Lewis Hamilton deal. And we'll do so just a moment here on the Overtime Media Network. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right. Well, welcome back to the show that is always up to speed with Formula One. We're talking Formula One. Specifically, we're talking uh, Lewis Hamilton and his uh, new contract. And uh, Mark, well, going back to what we were just talking about uh, before the break, and I've just pulled up in the meantime this uh, this thread that we had uh, going back and forth uh, the, the, the other day. So the the first thing that uh, that I wrote down and and I'll quote specifically I said I think uh, this is interesting on a couple of level levels one the deal they want to get done is more complex than we thought so a one year deal is the perfect solution in the meantime which is what we already uh, talked about now going into that uh, w what I think really struck me was the fact that it really opens up a lot of questions for next year and and beyond because like you say it's a one year deal there's no driver option also interesting that there's no veto. Like apparently he wanted that option to be able to have some say in what who his teammate is. 
So I think that um, I, I think it's interesting from two parts. The, the the first thing I thought about that because the the first thing I saw was one year deal and no veto clause in that uh, that contract. So that to me said uh, two things. One, Lewis wants to stick around for a significant amount of time, but perhaps he's maybe realizing. And I know the George Russell thing is one race. It was one weekend. But I mean, he did enough to really ask some questions about, okay, how much of it is the car and how much of it is the driver? I think that, uh, you know, he really, uh, you know, what George Russell did seriously ask questions about uh, Valtteri Bottas and whether or not, uh, you know, he should be in that uh, th- that seat. Considering that, uh, you know, that car specifically is designed around Lewis Hamilton to extent designed for Valtteri Bottas, definitely not d- designed for poor old George Russell, who literally had to be crammed in there to the very last uh, millimeter of his uh, body to fit. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting in that because, you know, they don't want to give him that veto. So that says to me, Lewis wants to stick around. But uh, Mercedes is also like, OK, well, we're happy to have you around for X number of years. But we don't want you having like the final say on your teammate or having this veto because we're looking towards the future that one of these days after one, two, three, four, whatever number of years that you're going to finally say, I'm at the age now. I've accomplished everything I want to do. It's, it's time for me to, to to move on from Formula One and uh, and move on to this uh, my next stage in life. And uh, because of that, uh, you know, we need to start looking towards who we're going to bring into this team to replace you afterwards. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And I think you hit on one thing that uh, we probably, at least I interpreted in the wrong way. And I think we had some really, really spirited conversation about George Russell back in November when he was able to step into that car Mm -hmm. that was, as you put it, absolutely not even remotely engineered for him and absolutely excel. And if not for a an atrocious Mercedes error would have won a race. Mm -hmm. And, and I think for me, and and, you know, the more I reflect on this, I think that says less about George and just more about the car. And I think if given the opportunity, there's probably an awful lot of other drivers that are on the grid today that would have done the exact same thing that George had done given the opportunity. So I think that weekend said a lot more about Lewis and a lot more about Valtteri than it did about George necessarily. George just happened to be the the function to kind of prove this myth is is, is absolutely accurate. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think for Bottas especially that, you know, he's had this car now for how many years? 17, 18, 19? He's been in that car full four time years. for four yep. years, right? And that this kid can walk in and essentially kick the snot out of him in qualifying and at the race, like with no well, experience right in the with first that car. Corner. Yeah, it's, 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 it's absolutely shocking. And I think the other thing too is if I'm Lewis, I would have been hunting for that security. And I think one of the things that's important to understand here is Formula One teams don't need to be loyal to their driver necessarily in the way that professional sports teams do. Professional sports teams... They have to spend an absurd amount of energy selling season tickets and selling tickets to their home arena and selling local TV and local radio deals. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of it. And if you alienate your fan base by disrespecting a favorite player or not signing somebody that's been a fan favorite for some time, you risk 
You know what? Not selling tickets, not selling season tickets, you know what? Getting reduced local TV radio and revenue and things like that. But a Formula One team is really different because ultimately it's not the Formula One individual teams that are selling tickets. That's the responsibility of the local hosts. And it's not the team's responsibility to see, sell those TV contracts. That's Liberty's responsibility. Formula One, at the end of the day, the individual teams, they're responsible to nobody more than their shareholders and their mm-hmm. shareholders are happy if they're winning because they can attract sponsors and maybe they don't really care who's in the seat. And you and I have talked a lot about the fact that at least I have that Lewis is this once in a lifetime transcendent superstar, but maybe there's a point where even he's asking too much of the team at a point in his career where he's potentially a liability. Like we're going to be talking a guy that's going to be in his late thirties after this upcoming season. And for everything that he's done, um, I, I absolutely agree that he deserves a hometown discount and he deserves a deal that you wouldn't give to anyone else in the sport, including Max, but maybe he just asked too much. And part of the speculation was one, what you spoke to, which was, was he asking for a V? And that's that's a lot for a driver to ask. But the other piece was it's been reported widely that he was looking for revenue sharing and revenue splitting with the team. Mm -hmm. So he would get his guaranteed contract, but he would also get a split of revenue, which would effectively make him a de facto owner. So. So, you know, again, I still think he's the greatest of all time. He's a transcendent star. He deserves the most money in the sport. But I think possibly even Lewis could ask too much, at which point this team is absolutely entitled to look at other opportunities. You know, and it really opens up the fascinating uh, possibility that a year from now, or maybe even before next year, that there may be one or two open seats at Mercedes. And, and, And that just opens up a whole new... Uh, I, I mean, you, you think that we've had a silly season before, but uh, could you imagine what, uh, what wow. would happen in that? I mean, uh, we, we know that Charles is under um, a contract at Ferrari to what, 24? Max is under contract at Red Bull to what, 23? So a right. you know, cu- couple of years, at least before these guys, like their, their natural length of their contracts is due to expire. But, you know, if you're Total Wolf and all of a sudden you don't have a team with featuring Lewis Hamilton in it, what lengths are you going to go to to get somebody into that car that's already an established winner in the sport? Although I go back and just looking at this, uh, you know, this this text exchange that we had, and um, I, I mentioned the whole. Uh, I said, okay, I'm thinking the Russell issue is much more significant than we first thought, and it confirms what we have thought all along. The Mercedes is a very, very good car, and in the right hands, it will do great things. Now, the, the, the question is, you know, the $64,000 question is that if, uh, you know, we, we find ourselves, you know, one year down the road or less that uh, Lewis actually is like, okay, you know, we, we couldn't come to a deal. And you know what? I, I've, I've had my time in Formula One. I've rewritten all the records. I, I'm good. I'm, I'm ready to walk away now. Who is that person that they could possibly put into the car? I mean, that would be a silly season like none other. And it would be mind-blowing. It won't you know, for for better or worse. Absolutely. I should add as well, and I'm going to pull back the curtain so everyone can see the inner workings of this podcast. But <laughs> you know, you and I were having a, a great conversation. I'd made a couple of comments about, and this is on WhatsApp, but I'd made a couple of comments on the deal. You then laid out, and you just shared most of it. This this beautiful this beautiful explanation of what had happened and perhaps why it happened. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven well-thought-out articulate messages over the space of 20 minutes. I then ghosted you for 12 (laughs) hours, at which point I respond with a completely unrelated link and never actually comment on your wonderfully laid-out argument. So 
I am a terrible co-host and a terrible <laughs> friend, but I wanted to pull back the curtain so the listeners could get a sense of how things actually work around here. You, you get uh, full marks, though, for, for your honesty and your transparency. <laughs> There's definitely something to be said about that. <laughs> so to all my friends, trust me, it's not just you I ghost via text and Instagram and ICQ or whatever else. It's everybody. <laughs> that was a good, quite uh, quite funny. I, had to, I, have to la- or I have to admit that I kind of raised an eyebrow that when, when I came back and you'd, you'd send me the article about the... <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was the F1 uh, TV audiences. I was just like, that wasn't really the response I was expecting. But hey, you know, they, they, well, I'll go with it. But yep. just uh, sticking with uh, Lewis, his dad said that this uh, one-year deal is not actually about uh, going for the uh, for, for the record. Now, uh, Lewis's dad, Anthony, was on uh, TalkSport Radio, and he said uh, they've had a long relationship uh, together. I think loyalty is quite important in the world nowadays. So it's nice to see them coming together for another year. I don't think the record is the target. There's a realization that obviously he's getting a, a bit older and wants to do things in life. There's more to life than racing, but for now he's happy to do another year, end quote. Now, I think this is kind of interesting, you know, to, to hear this from, from Lewis's dad, who at one time was his uh, his manager, maybe at this point, he's not uh, maybe privy to all the, the, the discussions, but uh, you would have to think, you know, just the, the obvious personal father-son relationship that he might have some insight into it. So, you know, I, I you know, I, I would be surprised if Lewis was to to, to walk away at uh, you know any time soon, but I think it's interesting to hear that uh, that that take nonetheless, and that's why I think that watching Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes over the next year, especially if they get off to some flying start, and it looks like he's going to uh, be world champion again at the end of this year, that uh, you know does he want to come back or does he does he pull a Rosberg and then decide to walk away from from the sport? I I think it's going to be. I mean, this is shaping up to be a fascinating year at in in any regard but this just adds you know like another massive story to watch throughout the year it really does that nico parallel is an interesting one i I don't know that it's you know when i reflect on it i don't know if they're necessarily compatible and i i think that i think that question with lewis is this it's just how much how much money am I willing to walk away from? So it's speculated Lewis is worth about 300 million, or at least it's speculated that's, that's what his, his career earnings have been from Formula One and from his individual sponsorship deal. So he's worth about 300 million. Where he's got that money tied up, I don't know. But if we assume that this contract is worth 30 million a year, which I think is probably a fair assumption, mm-hmm. and that every subsequent year would be worth 30 million, um, whether he loves Formula One and he's really passionate about being there or not, um, is it worth walking away from that amount of money? Like if he's got three good years left in him at a very high level, that could potentially be worth $90 million. And I, I, I don't care how unhappy I would be with my job potentially. I'm not walking away from that amount of money. And you know, I know he's passionate about all kinds of other things and it's fashion and music and all that kind of stuff, but he can still do that in parallel. Like I I think as long as there's the opportunity to pull in 20 or $30 million at a competitive team, Mm -hmm. I think that's something he'd be worth. I think he's something he's going to continue to consider highly. Like I I think though, if somebody was to say, Hey, Mercedes, like, Hey, we're moving on. You're 38 years old. We think we can, can be competitive or quite frankly, we just want to rebuild with some younger drivers. And somebody like a Haas came along and offered him $20 million. I don't know that that's necessarily a guaranteed deal, but I think if somebody's offering him 20 or $30 million a year, plus a premium drive, I just, I don't see a scenario 
under which he would walk away from that much money, especially yeah. given the current global circumstances. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I, I struggle to reconcile that as well. I, I just could not, uh, in my mind, I could just not uh, picture a scenario just to see uh, Lewis at, as a, as basically a seat warmer and help, uh, you know, just bring some press and, you know, help develop, uh, you know, a middle of the, the the pack kind of team. Not not at this point in his uh, career. I, I I really feel in my heart of hearts that when he's done, it's going to be, you know, I've done everything I've, I can do with the biggest and the best of the best. And you know, like I mean, what more does he have to prove by going to go to a team that's during in a rebuild or trying to build? I just don't see any attraction uh, for for that. No matter the amount of money, especially at that age, you know, especially yeah. a guy like Lewis Hamilton. And like you say, that has so many other interests outside of the sport, which, you know, you could take all these massive bucks that you could uh, you know, earn in those couple of years and use that to funnel into other areas of your life and launch, uh, you know, a whole new business and be, you know, do it obviously the, the, the right way from right the beginning. But hey, yeah, I'm not a financial advisor. You know, I'm, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not that. But, uh, you know, what What also was interesting, I saw this uh, pop up, uh, and this was on uh, Planet F1. And this was a story that they picked up about uh, longtime uh, F1 journalist Mark Hughes, who believes that uh, perhaps a Verstappen George Russell lineup is feasible in 2022, and you know, I I, th- I think it's an interesting one to talk about. I think it's it's especially interesting uh, from a couple of points. Uh, one, you know, Sergio Perez obviously hasn't been in that car; he hasn't raced a race for Red Bull yet. So we we obviously think that he's going to be an upgrade to that team, where which which has been lacking obviously since 2018, since the d- departure of Danny Ricardo. <laughs> But uh, I think it's it's interesting from that point of view, but also from the point of view that uh, that we've talked about almost ad nauseum on this show about George Russell and how his time in Formula One hasn't come yet. Maybe he's kind of like fallen a step or two behind some of the other drivers of his age group and his class. But I certainly think it's going to happen for for George at at some time. But. I don't know how much uh, credence or weight to really put this one. I mean, lots of things are feasible, but I just don't know how likely it is to see it, to see happen. It's fun to talk about though, right? And, sure, and I absolutely. think that's one of those things that kind of drives the Formula One conversation on is speculation, speculation, speculation. And it wouldn't be unprecedented in the context of the Red Bull team, right? Like we've seen this before. We've seen drivers go through their academy and then leave the team for whatever reason. We've seen it with Daniel Ricciardo. Um, he's probably the most recent example of somebody that came through the organization, won races, could never quite reach the peak for all those other reasons, principally the fact that Mercedes is a competitor. Um, we saw this with Sebastian Vettel. He yep. did hit the peak. He had that run of four titles, but even he moved on. So it's funny that even when Red Bull is the absolute cream of the crop when it comes to teams on the grid their best drivers do still choose oftentimes to leave so i think there's precedence for max to leave and obviously i think from a marketing and exposure perspective that would be a very significant blow to to the red bull team and i'm sure it's part of their calculus obviously nothing's guaranteed and if i was max verstappen and the opportunity came to go to mercedes there's absolutely no circumstance in the world under which i'm staying with that team so if if i'm if i'm 
Christian Horner and the Red Bull family, obviously from a calculus perspective, I'm looking at the quality of my academy and just making sure that we've got some drivers that can come in to backfill potentially some of these roles. And as we've seen the last couple of years, there's been some hits and misses with respect to their development capabilities. But mm-hmm. again, it's fun to talk about and it would be really exciting to see a George Russell, uh, Max Verstappen pairing. It was funny though, when I saw this article initially, I took it without actually reading the article. I took it to be <laughs> George Russell displacing uh, our friend, um, oh my good, Chico, and going to the Red Bull team next year. Um, but to either way, it's exciting to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, it is interesting, too. But I mean, there, there's a lot of things that uh, could be feasible. I mean, uh, you know, especially like we were talking about uh, previously, that uh, perhaps we see two vacancies at Mercedes next year. I mean, it's possible we could see a Verstappen-Sebastian Vettel lineup at Mercedes. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of different things. But, you know, especially if that, uh, say, one of those seats opens up at uh, at Mercedes, regardless if it's, uh, you know, which of, which of those drivers does not come back for 2020. 22, or maybe they both do. I mean, uh, you know, they have a, obviously a history of rolling one-year contracts with, uh, with with Valtteri Bottas. But the thing is, I, I mean, uh, when it comes to Max, I mean, did he not have an offer from uh, Mercedes just as he was breaking into Formula One to be like a reserve driver or maybe a simulator driver or something like that? I'm kind of going from memory again here. Right. But they decided to go the, the, the Red Bull route and with Toro Rosso. And uh, obviously, you know, why would you, you know, second guess that, uh, you know, making that move, you know, five years ago or whatever it was? Obviously, it's worked out. But the ultimate question is, I mean, Max has what it takes. He's got all the attributes to be a world champion. The only thing that he's lacking right now is the car that's going to help him win a title. I mean, is that going to be the car this year? Who knows? But uh, at some point... You know, obviously he's got a lot of ties to Red Bull. There, there's obviously going to be some sentimentality or sentimentality there. Won his first race and won a bunch of races there. Become an F1 superstar with Red Bull. But at some point, if they can't deliver, you know, he's going to start looking elsewhere. And if there's vacancies at at Red Bull, the first thing he's going to be doing is calling his his agent, his lawyers, like guys, find me a loophole in my contract and break this thing so I can get into a silver car for next year. Yeah, absolutely. I don't. Yeah. I don't disagree with you whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. Well, let, let's stick now with the the, the Red Bull uh, uh, story here. Now, so this is the big one that we've been uh, talking about. Uh, that saying that it needed to get done, and it did get done this uh, week. And the Formula One teams have finally approved the engine freeze plans for 2022. And also, uh, this is uh, interesting. Uh, well, they 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 also they approved that, but also they they approved the uh, the or at least are open to the idea of the sprint races, but they want more details on that so they, they've been busy looking at uh, different things but sprint races is one thing but the big one is this uh this uh th- this engine freeze which uh, now gives uh, red bull the you know <laughs> the the comfort or the uh the the, the solid foundation uh, that they know that if they want to pursue and 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 buy or take over the honda engine program they can now pursue that and uh th- that you know getting that done will obviously make them uh you know a works team in their own right and you know i i think this it needed to happen and i'm glad that it did yeah, absolutely. I was I was excited to see this one. I think you and I were cautiously optimistic it was going to happen soon. I think we're a little bit disappointed that it took this long. And I think maybe just to provide a little bit of context to our listeners as well, uh, Formula One goes through phases with different engine formula. And the current engine formula was introduced in 2014. It features a 1.6 liter V6 turbo hybrid. And the reason that this was introduced is because it's always been important for Formula One to have 
a power unit in the car that has at least some relevance to road cars. So if I'm Mercedes and I'm involved in Formula One, the engine that I'm running on the track has to have at least some relative resemblance of what a road car could have. So a low displacement forced induction engine. Yeah, you know what? You see those in road cars and hybrid technology, probably not so common now because we're going straight up full on EV, but it was relatively common in 2014. Mm -hmm. The challenge is that this engine formula is one incredibly complicated, sophisticated, and inherently expensive. So not ideal for a sport looking to manage its costs. (laughs) Um, But increasingly, it's less and less and less relevant to what we're seeing in road cars. So the sport has known for some time that as part of its evolution, it needs to ditch this engine formula. And it's been speculated that that was probably going to happen around 2026. Now, the teams want to bring that forward. They want to bring it forward because they want to get a cheaper power unit into the cars because these things are expensive and incredibly difficult. And it's also widely understood that the reason that there aren't more companies producing motors for F1 is that if I'm Porsche or the Volkswagen group and I want to get into Formula One, I look like I'm going to have to sink hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into building this power unit. No, thank you. So the sport has kind of targeted 2026 for a new power unit. And we don't know, and I've got some comments on this here, but we don't necessarily know what that's going to look like. So the thought was the sport would do this from 2023 until we had a new power unit, they would freeze development of the current engine. So they would basically say to all the teams, you can continue to refine and improve your engine up to this date. But after this date, you cannot touch the engine anymore until we have a new engine on the grid. And the design, the intention was to create a little bit of parity. So the original plan was that was going to get to 2023. Red Bull in all of their needs and requirements worth petitioning to bring that forward. So that's what's happened. So the teams can continue to refine improve and modify their current power units basically until December 31st of this year, at which point that engine is frozen. You are not touching it. So principally, they're going to be spending a lot of time getting the engines ready for the synthetic fuels that are expected to be introduced next year. That's going to kind of be the heavy lifting this year. But when December 31st hits, that engine's frozen. You're not touching it again. And the reason this was important for Red Bull was, you know, we're going to take on the huge sunk cost of buying out Honda's power unit division. This is going to be a huge engineering exercise for us, we can't be in a position where other teams are continuing to improve theirs for the next two years. So this is a boon for Red Bull. Now, the other thing that came out of the conversation over the last couple of days is apparently two of the teams were arguing that as part of the engine freeze agreement that Liberty and the FIA would impose restrictions on teams that controlled fuel flow to enable those teams with less impressive and less capable engines of running a fuel mixture and a fuel map that helped artificially improve the performance of those engines relative to power units like the Renault and the Mercedes engine. So there's some speculation that one of the reasons that this took so long was because Ferrari and Red Bull were gently pushing Formula One down this path like, hey, Bring it forward to 2022, but we also want some stipulations that allow us to run a different fuel map so we can artificially gain power so we have more parity with some of the other teams on the grid. Renault and Mercedes, by all accounts, as it's been reported, said that's 
absolute garbage and there's no way we're <laughs> accepting that. And then ultimately Ferrari and Red Bull were like, well, hey, we tried. So Red Bull gets what they need. You freeze the engines. It looks like the new engine formula could be brought forward a year. I think the question now really is what is that new engine formula going to look like? And I don't know. I think you probably have a section where we can talk about that a little I bit, do. but that yep. provides a little bit of context because I think a lot of people and some of our listeners are reaching out to me like, what the hell is an engine freeze? Can you make this a little bit simpler? So I just wanted to provide a little bit backstory and hopefully that helps. Sure. Well, I do have some notes on uh, what the, the, the plans sure. might look like for the next uh, generation of engines. And we'll talk about that in just a moment as we take another break here on the Overtime Media Network. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And to all of you listening on the podcast and all of you watching on YouTube, welcome to One and All. We're talking about uh, Formula One uh, and the, the the possibility, like you just mentioned before the, the break, Mark, that the new generation of Formula One engines could be brought forward from 2026 to 2025. So the idea is uh, currently that the next generation of Formula One engines will still be turbo hybrids, uh, but it's going to be a complete overhaul of the current uh, concept. And this is going to be uh, available evaluated by a, by a working group. So the uh, they're, they're going to have a committee that's going to have uh, actually both a, a mixture of current and potential uh, new power unit and engine manufacturers, as well as the fuel supplier. So they're going to be looking at a whole bunch of things. And they have about four or five bullet points about uh, some of the key principles, as they're calling, that they want to meet with these next uh, generations. So the first one is, uh, and this is the big one, environmental sustainability and social and automotive relevance, which is uh, pretty much, uh, I, I don't think there's any shock there. That's uh, It seems to be a continuation of uh, what they've been doing already. Fully sustainable fuel, which is uh, you know something that they've been uh, talking about, uh, you know, with the you know perhaps uh, you know biofuels and some of these exotic fuel uh, things that have sort of been talked about and discussed in recent times. Now, this is interesting. Now, bullet point number three is what they say is creating a powerful <laughs> and emotive power unit. Oh, okay, so the rest of us is like make an engine that sounds damn loud that we love yeah. and we're used to. So I, I think that that's, uh, you know, one of it is make it sound like a Formula One engine that we, we've known to come and grow and love over the years. So I think, uh, you know, that's more of an aesthetic thing, you know, that's, uh, you know, but it is what it is. That would be kind of cool. None of uh, that notwithstanding. As you mentioned uh, already, a significant cost reduction and uh, number five, an attractiveness to new power unit manufacturers. And, and I think those... Um, Number three, I think if they can come up with a new power unit that sounds as cool as the V8s, the V10s, the V12s from years gone by, I think that would be great. But I think uh, the the two real key uh, takeaways from from this uh, list, the shopping list that they have, is the uh, the cost reduction and making it attractive to to, uh, to new power unit manufacturers. Just like you said in the previous segment, I think that is absolutely crucial for all those points that uh, that that you made. Just the the insane ridiculous cost that you could use to basically run a small country that it goes into developing one of these power units. I, I, I love the fact that you were able to recap those five points because I think those are significant. And I think as the years progress, we're going to continue to look back on these and really mm-hmm. grade Formula One on their ability to execute on these. And I'll be honest, and I don't want to come across necessarily as negative, but I think we need to look at the first point in particular. So environmental sustainability, that's why they're looking at ecofuels. That's why they're potentially looking at hydrogen-based fuels and social and automotive relevance. So I, I think the context here is as a society, we are dramatically shifting towards 
fully battery equipped electronic vehicles. In fact, not only is this being driven by market demand, but if you look at states and provinces and countries, they are outright mandating that we are going to prohibit the sale of internal combustion engines in a lot of cases by 2035. Mm -hmm. So if you think that the current generation of the 1.6 liter V6 turbo hybrid engines ran from 14 to 26, that's 12 years. If they're expecting to get 10 years out of the next generation of engine, that the relevance to what's on the road is going to be fundamentally broken. If I'm Mercedes, if I'm Honda, if I'm Renault, I will not even be selling an internal combustion engine. Why is my Formula One car running, even if it's a sustainable fuel-based engine, it's still internal combustion. Um, why are my Formula One cars running something that is fundamentally different than what my road cars? In fact, my road cars are running power units that have been mandated by law. It's There's going to be potentially a very weird disconnect here. The other thing that I'm very, very suspect of is I don't buy for a minute that there's going to be significant cost reductions. Um, the one thing that I do believe is going to potentially be very real is that whole comment about creating a power unit that's more emotive, that's mm-hmm. more visceral, that's more raw, and draws out the emotions in long-term Formula One engines. Uh, I think for a lot of our listeners, one of the things that Formula One's been heavily criticized about since 14 is the fact that the engines themselves don't feel and sound like a Formula One engine. And I think there's a couple of things that they could do to remedy that. One would be, you know what, raise the rev limiter. It's a little bit difficult with a turbo hybrid engine because one of the benefits of a turbo engine is you get that big wallop of power lower in the rev band and you don't need to rev as loud. Um, it's also been speculated that if you gut the MGUH, you know what, that's going to help because that cuts off, that currently kills a lot of the sound that would otherwise make to the exhaust. So there's some things that they can do there. The other comment is, The significant cost reduction is important because you need to stabilize your existing teams, but without a cost reduction, you're never going to attract new teams. But I'm just, I'm very suspect of the fact that they're going to be able to do this because as we start getting closer to 2025, when we introduce those engines, the teams, unless it's heavily regulated, are going to pour resources into one, developing this engine, and then over the first couple of years, refining it. Because Mm -hmm. what I don't think teams want to see is what happened in 2014, where you had one team that was four or five years literally ahead of the rest of the grid in terms of development. And I think there's going to be a race to spend as much money as possible early on to get to a certain point where we don't have this huge disparity in parity early on. So a long-winded way of saying I'm skeptical about all of this. Yeah, well, you know, I, I mean, just to, to that last point there about uh, the, the the fact that Mercedes were literally light years ahead of everybody else when the these engines were introduced in 2014. I mean, it, it's it, it's a deficit that nobody has been able to overcome or close yep. that gap. I mean, we, we've seen we've seen some more competitiveness from Ferrari from different times, but nobody has been able to match them on a consistent basis. But you know, the the one question that I keep asking myself when I when, when I read this, and especially under that first uh, point in their little um, their shopping list, there is that uh, you know the road relevancy and the the whole social thing and whatnot is uh, that the, the fact that okay. They're sticking with this, uh, you know, these turbo hybrid engines, but I can't help but ask myself, are they just kicking the ball a little bit further down the road, knowing that at some point that uh, they're going to have to make that transition to, uh, you know, fully electric power? And I'm just wondering if it, th- this is just one of these stopgap measures that uh, that they can just uh, keep uh, kind of prolonging to the point where, you know, you, you can put a battery in a racing car that doesn't weigh the same uh, as a train locomotive.
of, and that these uh, electric engines can uh, you know put out similar output and perform in a similar way to these uh, to the engines the power units they have now. So that that's something that's just you know that keeps lurking in the back of my head. I, I think that for some very good reasons, uh, like you said, just the road relevance. I mean, in, in fifteen years, if we're all driving EVs and they're they're still driving around, even if it it is a very efficient uh, you know turbo hybrid engine, it still has that core internal combustion engine in it and uh, you know that that road relevancy you know regardless if you have traction control and abs and paddle shift on the back of your <laughs> your steering wheel the fact is if they're still putting gas into that car no matter how exotic it is it's not ultimately it kind of doesn't line up with their ethos and the, the whole philosophy of having a road relevant car so it, it 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 is interesting but i just like i say i feel it's a stopgap i really do yeah, and I don't know. So one, I actually completely agree with you. I think it's absolutely a stopgap, but I don't know why. And maybe it's because obviously I think a full-on transition to an electric motor could be a little bit jolting for traditional F1 fans because we're talking about with the with the new engine formula, they're talking about making it more emotive and more visceral and yeah. making the, the engines there. And they're purposely talking about making it louder. Well, none of that's possible with an electric engine. So I think part of it is F1 could just be in this really difficult position where we know, hey, we know technically our future is to go all electric, but if we do that too soon, how many of our current generation of fans do we straight up turn off? And I think you're right. I think they're absolutely kicking it down the road as far as possible because they don't necessarily know what they need to do short-term or long-term. And I think you're right. If we can just run a revised hybrid turbo solution for a couple more years, maybe we can kind of figure that out. And the other challenge too is, we already have an open wheel all electric racing series in Formula E. And naturally, that's not even remotely on the same level as Formula One in terms of money and exposure and compensation. But possibly the long term would have to be that if Liberty wants to convert to electric, maybe there's some legal challenges from, from the Formula E group. And ultimately, they have to look at a, an expensive buyout to be able to transition their own sport to full time, full time electric. But yeah. at that, that said, there's a lot of manufacturers. If you look at, Formula E right now, there's a lot of manufacturers that I think Formula One would love to have on board, including the Ford group under the Jaguar banner that are racing in Formula E and they're doing it because the costs are so contained and so, so predictable. But you're right. I think they're really kicking the can down the road, knowing that at some point they have to make that transition away from, from an internal combustion engine. You know, I, I think we're we're overlooking one uh, very obvious point is that, uh, you know, it, with this sort of like more visceral and raw and emotive engine is that I think they're kind of really playing to the, uh, the the predominant demographic, which is us right now, men and women of our generation, that these cars are too quiet till we get to the point where we're too old and the 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 the, the, the cars are too quiet group are now drowned out by the the, the younger generations. These cars are too damn noisy. <laughs> Yeah. And the trans, I'm being I'm being a little bit sarcastic. No, no, that, that's but, a great you know, point, right? So, what makes a, a Formula One car great for us is the exact thing that would be a turnoff for the younger driver, right? Like if you grew up knowing that that internal combustion engines are the death of the earth and the future is EV and the future is electric and all these other kind of things. For them, this internal combustion engine's a total turnoff. And the other risk for Formula One is that you and I are 
kind of in that awkward demo for Formula One. Yep. We're good because we still spend money, but in 10 or 15 years, we come that demo that maybe consumes the sport, but we're not spending the money on their sponsors. And all of a sudden, those 20 and 30 year olds that grew up knowing nothing but EVs, they become their principal demo and then you have to cater to them. So I think you're right. They're just kicking the can down the road. Yeah, you know, it'd be kind of interesting. You know, I, I can just uh, picture myself, whatever comes after millennials, you know, whatever that next, uh, that, that generation gets uh, named, it's just like, oh, they're still racing with internal combustion engines. Why don't yeah. we just start smoking like they, they used to, kind of, you know, totally. uh, pr- promote uh, tobacco back in the day? You know, it'll just become, it'll be such a complete turnoff for these younger generations because they'll have, you know, all these things that, uh, you know, they've grown up with, like you say, that are just like bad in so many regards. But now, I don't know if this next story is bad. But I think this is uh, interesting, and I think it's worth trying. And this is, uh, you know, we, we, we talked about it last week. So they are going to try and pilot some of these uh, sprint races. There's going to be some, you know, decision made before the start of the season. So they're looking at uh, possibly running these uh, sprint races at uh, three times so throughout the, the year. I think Brazil, Italy, and Canada are the races that uh, that they're piloting to do this. And we talked about it, uh, I think it was last week or the week uh, before, that, uh, that it seems almost a little bit too soon to uh, to try and do some of these things you know ahead of the the, the new regs that are com- going to come in in 2022 and the new formula and all that but uh, I, I've kind of changed it a little ways or my, my stance not completely but uh, but but at least partially I'm thinking that if this year is sort of an in-between kind of um, you know, call it what you want, uh, a sort of an in-between year, sort of dictated uh, because of, uh, you know, the pandemic and the lockdown and everything from, from you know, last year, sort of a holdover that uh, there was, we're stretching it out to, to one, basically one very long 2020 season is that I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea to try it at a couple of select races and then you've got a bit of a sample and then you'll have like a, a, at least some data you'll have some experience to see okay this is what we tried at these th- three races did it improve the spectacle or or whatever i i think now it's worth trying if they just said you know started the season okay we're we're going to go with this format just right from now i would have thought that was absolutely the wrong way but i'm i'm completely open to trying it at select events You've, you've convinced me I'm in. And, and it's funny because last week I was of the exact same mindset that this is short-term thinking, it's desperate thinking. But the more I, I, I was able to kind of relax and think about it, I'm like, it's not that bad. And I think from an F1 perspective, the challenge is you typically have a race every two weeks. And yep. that race weekend is free practice on Friday. Nobody watches. You have free practice Saturday morning. Nobody watches. You have qualifying, which over the last six years, unfortunately, I would guarantee you, and and F1 doesn't break out their viewership this way, but I guarantee you no one's watching qualifying because they know what the outcome is going to be. So now you have the potential where let's move the qualifying to Friday. You know what? Maybe a Friday afternoon or a Friday night qualifying session. That's pretty cool. And get some eyeballs on that. And then you introduce the sprint race on the Saturday. Well, that's exciting because that's unpredictable. Let's get some eyeballs on that. And now all of a sudden you have this really compelling race weekend, quality on Friday, a sprint on Saturday and the full on Grand Prix on Saturday. I think that's pretty cool. And, and you know what? I was going to be one of those traditionalists, which is, you know, it takes away from the, the Grand Prix, the spectacle that is the, the Sunday. Who cares? Like if Formula One's able to create more entertainment and get more eyeballs on the sport, um, that's good news for them because again, Liberty's ultimately accountable to their shareholders. And if you can create more watchable content, 
content over a race weekend mm-hmm. and that helps you drive bigger TV deals. Awesome. Do it because it also creates more content for us. So on a Monday, we can talk about what happened at qualifying, what happened during the sprint race and how that led into and maybe dictated the outcome of the Grand Prix on the Sunday. All in, especially as a trial, all in. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that uh, it could potentially be very, very exciting. So it'll be fun to watch and see how they they try and package that uh, at these uh, these, these, uh, couple events. And uh, I don't know. uh, I usually don't flip-flop so quickly on on this sort of issue. But uh, when I saw how they were trying to, like, package it all together, I'm like, I'm I'm definitely open to seeing how this works. And I hope that it... uh, that it works out uh, well. But the one thing that we talked about uh, that we've been hoping for was greenlighted this uh, week, and that is the fact that Portimao is back on the schedule uh, for, for this year, which is uh, exciting. It's uh, going to fill in in that, uh, what was it, that open uh, weekend at the beginning of uh, May. So it is, uh, yeah, it, it, it's great. We've got uh, we got Bahrain going on March 28th, Imola hosting the, the second round on April uh, 18th, and then uh, Portugal on, uh, on the weekend of uh, May. May second, so that's uh, really cool, and you know, of course, there is uh, you know still a lot up in the air. I, I mean, we really don't know what's going to happen with the schedule. I mean, there's there's still a lot uh, going on with the pandemic, of course, and uh, whether or not this is the final version of the calendar remains to be seen. But uh, you know, just be prepared that it probably will change at some point. I, I think we just have to be uh, accepting of that fact that when and if it happens. Absolutely. I thought it was interesting this week as well that the Spanish Grand Prix organizers announced they are selling tickets and there is a COVID guarantee. So it looks like if for whatever reason, local health authorities determine that it's unsafe for the race to have spectators, they will get a full refund. So it's uh, all all tickets. I don't know if that's the right term, but um, it's uh, it's gun guns away. I don't know where I'm going with this really terrible, <laughs> terrible pun. They are selling tickets in Spain under the premise that if they can't allow people to attend, you'll get your money back. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We should probably expect many changes. And I think Canada will probably be one of the first ones that falls. Yeah, it, it just uh, seems that that's going to happen at uh, at some point, uh, you know, before it's all said and done. Uh, before we go into our final uh, break, Mark, I just wanted to to mention here that uh, Zach Brown, CEO of uh, McLaren, said that he's actually very uh, enthusiastic and eager to see uh, some sort of rotational model uh, be introduced into uh, future Formula One seasons. And uh, he believes that it could help uh, some of the races uh, be uh, more sustainable. And I, I absolutely agree with uh, what, what he says. I mean, we've seen in recent years these sort of on again off again german grand prix as as one example and i think that's a a great way to to really include because i mean there's more venues that they have right now that they can possibly put into an entire season and then there's some some venues like like i was just saying the german grand prix at hockenheim that are you know finding themselves in in a position where it's difficult for them to keep uh, you know affording to, to to pay all the hosting costs and, and and stage this grand prix on a yearly basis and i i think that if there is some one thing that we've learned from uh you know formula one during covid that this um you know obviously one being flexible is important but i think it's just gone to prove how many great uh, tracks there are around the world that that formula one these cars uh, race well on and have uh, really led to some exciting races and i think that it would just be a bit of a fresh air rather than maybe having a slightly different schedule every year where maybe one race drops off and you have another race uh, jump in and they just 
just stick around for four or five years and then you never see them again, like Turkey or India or some of these other races that that were that that stuck around for a couple of years and then disappeared, which uh, you know I, I always find rather disappointing. So. I think that they should really consider this, uh, you know, as, as something to look at in, in the future and introduce. I think it could be a good thing for the sport. I really do. I think of, uh, yeah, I think principally of a, a race like Malaysia. So, yes, Malaysia was typically well liked by the drivers. It was a great track. It was exceptionally well maintained. But I think at, at the end of the day, the challenge was this was a smaller, although affluent, well-industrialized and wealthy country, but I think they struggled from a ticket perspective to sell MotoGP tickets in a country that's mad about motorcycle racing and Formula One tickets. But I think, you know what, if they were in a situation where maybe they were only hosting an F1 race every second year, maybe that's an easier sell and the two races could have coexisted. And I would love to get back to somewhere like Malaysia. Maybe it's not every year, but I would love to get that track onto the calendar because like you said, there are so many great races but it's also just another compelling addition to the calendar, right? If you have the same static, to your point, 17, 18, 19, 20 races, and maybe there's one or two changes a year, gets a little bit static, especially if four or five of your tracks like Russia are terrible and, and don't emote any sense of visceral racing action. Mm-hmm. Like if you could mix that up a little bit, that's that's really exciting. And I think for a viewer, I think that's ultra, ultra compelling. I think the challenge is going to be finding hosts that have a track that can be maintained to a FIA grade one level for a race that maybe isn't hosted every year. It costs a lot of money to maintain these tracks. But again, in cases like Finland and in cases like Malaysia, you have a track that's already being maintained for MotoGP purposes. Yeah. You know, if it's MotoGP FIA grade one, it can host an F1 track. So I, I love the idea as well. Yeah, I mean, especially if they're, you know, Liberty's ideas to um, get two to possibly three races in the United States and, uh, you know, this big push, they want to really build the sport there. They've got to make a room somewhere else or, you know, maybe there's some races that uh, for, for whatever reason uh, just are not in the position to host a race e- each and every year. Right. Or some races, like you say, that just shouldn't be on the calendar to, to, to begin Russia. with. Russia. Because, yeah, the, the, the racing is just so vanilla and unexciting that... Uh, you know, it's just like, uh, yeah, it was a Grand Prix, but it wasn't the, the most exciting two hours of my my life to sit down on Sunday afternoon and watch this thing. So I, I certainly think it would be a, a good thing to do. I, I think we're just going to take one final break here on the show, and we got a couple more stories to run down before we, uh, we wrap it up. And uh, we'll do so after this very short break. So please don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And uh, just uh, quickly before we go into, I want to talk about uh, Ferrari. There were a couple of things here. I just wanted to uh, to, to mention, I, and and this is just going back to the story that uh, was your response to my my beautifully thought out uh, dissertation <laughs> on the Lewis Hamilton contract. But it was very very uh, you know fascinating. Despite everything that happened last year. Formula One's television numbers held up remarkably well. They were quite resilient. Uh, the total TV audience for 2020 was 1.5 billion u- uh, viewers, which was down uh, you know, significantly uh, from 1.9 in 2019. But still, I, I think that's a very, very good number, you know, all things uh, withstanding. I mean, obviously, people have had other things on their mind, and rightfully so, on, on so many different issues, the pandemic uh, being the main one. 
but uh, I, I think that these are very very encouraging uh, despite uh, the the drop uh, drop off and uh, apparently the average viewership per race last year was 87 and a half million viewers down four and a half percent from the from the year before but still I think uh, that's uh, that's quite encouraging and if uh, we can get back uh, to normal or we can get some more exciting races I think they're they're well positioned there's two real considerations here, uh, and I think you're right. I think that the core number to look at here isn't the sum total that the fact that they shed 400 million viewers. I think you want to look at the the kind of the numbers on a race by race basis, and if it's down five percent with everything that's going on, with the fact that it was a very predictable outcome, I don't think that's a bad number. I think there's two big takeaways here. One is that Formula One has had this massive shift over the last five years in Western Europe from the fact that historically almost the entire Formula One race calendar in countries like Spain and Germany and France and the UK were on free TV. And to much to the frustration of a lot of fans in those countries, Formula One has moved behind a TV paywall. It's now on pay TV. And I think there's an awful lot of traditional F1 viewers that haven't followed that simply because the cost in a lot of cases is super prohibitive. So the fact that the numbers are still relatively strong while basically alienating a lot of those fans is... So it's not a good news story that that's the way they've done it, but it's a good news story that they're still finding those viewers. I think the other consideration is this... These numbers don't truly account for the full core audience because I guarantee you that there is a very significant number of viewers, and I'm I'm assuming in the tens of millions, that are watching these races every weekend via illegal streams. And you and I can talk openly about this because we're not an FIA or a liberty-sanctioned kind of podcast but quite frankly there are tens of millions of people watching via illegal streams so if you want the true number the true holistic number of people that are viewing it's Mm -hmm. probably much greater than this and i think what that number effectively captures is our demographic what it's not capturing is that 20 and 30 year old demographic that is finding other ways to watch it and they're finding it through other means because one there's an abundance of illegal streams and i am not for a second promoting illegal streams please don't think that but they're doing it because his Historically, there hasn't been a good streaming alternative because an awful lot of kids in their 20s and 30s, and I shouldn't be disrespectful, but an awful lot of people in their 20s and 30s, they're not subscribed to cable TV packages or satellite packages. I don't. We don't have cable TV in our house. When Mm -hmm. we want to watch something, we basically subscribe to a streaming package so we get the content that we want. Until recently, Formula One streaming experience, the F1 TV Pro app, was garbage. And even where it was, and, and the other problem too, is it wasn't available in most markets. So I think F1 really has this opportunity where they can start tapping into this younger demo that's watching, but they're watching via illegal streams. You need to be able to tap into that demo and say, look, we have this really compelling ultra affordable product that gives you the stream plus all of this other great stuff like that's the opportunity because i think for these 40 and 50 year olds if they haven't cut cable yet they're probably not going to at least not anytime soon but you need to tap into that younger viewership base that's watching your product but they're just not paying to do it so i think these numbers are good but i don't think they tell the whole story yeah you know that's interesting that's an angle i I never actually considered and you know, it's funny too when you brought up the whole uh, illegal stream thing. It's because uh, one of my very good friends is uh, from Mexico, and every once in a while, he's like, "Oh, there's this really great Liga MX match on tonight. Uh, you know, we should go check out uh, whatever is uh, Chivas Guadalajara versus Club America or something like that." He'll send me uh, like a link. I'm like, 
dude, if I click on this link, am I just going to infect my computer with like a billion viruses and all sorts of like malware and ransomware? God only knows what. But, uh, you know, that that really is a very, very good point. It really makes you wonder that uh, these people or some people may who um, have not made that shift uh, from you know being or, or not being able to afford say going from the from the free uh, uh, TV to going behind the paywall or maybe you know like you say watching through some other means that that is a very very good point and talking about uh, money and th- this is one we we kind of had a little bit of a chuckle about uh, the last uh, couple of days is uh, the the story that uh, there's a, a monaco based uh, startup uh, that is uh, you know interested in joining uh, formula 1 and is uh, saying that uh, the the possible waiver of this 200 million dollar dilution fund fee is a, is a positive step forward so now there, there's a fellow, his, uh, his name is uh, Salvatore Gandolfo. He's, uh, he's claimed uh, at the time that they had uh, financial solidarity that's required by the FIA to make this uh, you know, a success. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know about that. Even Jean Toad, FIA president, is kind of uh, downplayed, uh, you know, and, and kind of like poo-pooed the idea that maybe any uh, new teams will be, uh, you know, uh, joining the grid. And it's... Uh, I don't know. I, I've, got, I've got real mixed uh, emotions about this. I, I really don't know what, you know, I, I just I just can't see it. It's just, it's just basically, I think I should just cut straight to the chase here. Yeah, this one's not happening. And just to re- kind of speak to your the dilution fee, the, the reason why existing Formula One teams aren't necessarily that amped up about introducing additional teams to the grid is because ultimately they have to split the prize money in another direction, right? Like there's a certain amount of prize money. You don't want to give it up. And the more teams on the grid, the more ways you've got to split that prize money. And I know when we still had Marusha and Manor, it was really, I think only the top 10 teams that were scoring any prize money, but you could also then be kind of a team that's ninth or 10th and you're securing some prize money. And if you introduce a new team, you could get bumped to that 11th or 12th spot. Suddenly you don't have anything. So I think that's that's a consideration. The other thought, too, is that if Formula One is going to look at um, allowing a new team, you got to do it one of two ways. You've got to look at promoting an organization that's already competing in F2 or F3 and has some racing infrastructure because you can't start one of these operations up overnight. You will fail. Or you've got to lean into an auto manufacturer that has resources of their own. This one, this one makes no sense to me. Uh, I I was surprised that it was reported by motorsport.com. This is something that I would have expected to see from a clickbait super site like planetf1.com which by the way i reference all the time and i visit 47 times a day but yeah i don't see i don't see this one happening at all yeah you know it it, it would be kind of interesting but um i don't know i just can't see it i mean we, we could uh, you know we could be a startup we could try and start our own uh, f1 team but uh, you know it, it it just kind of had that sort of uh, you know I, I don't know maybe there's more legs to it but I kind of got the same feeling as I did as every time like uh, you know the, the the name Rich Energy kind of like gets thrown around with like links to Formula One and you know they're they're back in the news or trying to make it sound like that they got some deal to to come back on the grid and you know that that whole I mean don't get me wrong the Haas cars and that black and golds they looked phenomenal but uh, when they yanked that sponsorship halfway through the season for whatever reason right that was just that was just a bizarre, bizarre story. So I don't. They, know. I, I get they, a similar feeling with with this, you know, startup. But who knows? I right? totally agree. And I'll just add as well. Rich Energy is about as toxic a sponsor as you can imagine in the sport of Formula One. If any team, even so much as took a meeting with that with that organization, I, I would be shocked, and I would almost puke in disgust. They are a absolute pariah in the marketing and energy drinks world. And I think the other thing too is 
I don't think anyone's ever yet been able to locate their product in a retail <laughs> store. No one knows what they actually are. Like they profess to be an energy drinks company, but they don't sell energy drinks. It's it's very, very, very strange. And I can't imagine any Formula One team in any amount of dire straits would sign up for that gong show. Yeah, I, that, that just seems a little bit strange. An energy drinks a company that doesn't sell energy drinks. So it, uh, exactly. <laughs> if you can make money off of that business model, I mean, uh, <laughs> good for you, but... Uh, there was a couple more stories I just wanted to talk about, and apparently, this is one we should have talked about a little bit uh, earlier. I got my notes out of order here, but apparently Ferrari is eyeing what they call a radical new engine concept for uh, for their 2022 uh, car project, uh, which uh, apparently could feature some sort of design that's never been seen before. And I think this would have uh, obviously been a lot uh, you know, more appropriate in the discussion we had a little bit earlier about the whole <laughs> so engine freeze. So. I, I apologize for kind of getting it. Uh, out of uh, uh, last year, but I, I think it's uh, really interesting uh, because, you know, th- there is this one little uh, note, uh, one little uh, sentence I saw in the original uh, article on motorsport.com, and and it uh, and I'll just read it. It says, the Italian team was caught on the back foot last year when a series of technical directives from the FIA regarding fl- fuel flow measurements led to a suffer of power drop. So, you know, we've never really you know, heard it spelled out, but I think this is about as close as we're, we're ever going to get to like the, you know, the, the proverbial smoking gun, Mark. Man, if you'd crawled out of a cave and this was the first article you'd read in the past four years, you would think that Ferrari were the victim of a, of a ruthless, cruel FIA. Not the fact that they were blatantly caught cheating with their fuel maps, but I'm very curious to see what this is and whether there's any legitimacy. And you got to think sometimes that these teams plant stories in the media or they leak things or they share things to put their, to put their product into a better light. I would say though that it's been interesting that throughout the entire off season, the entire Ferrari organization has really hedged bets and they've been very conservative with their expectations for 2021 and talked mm-hmm. about the fact that they're not expecting to see any really significant gains this season and they don't necessarily expect to see any until 2022 when they've got another year of refinement. So it's interesting to try to understand where this story came from that we're, that motorsport.com is reporting that they're expecting to see some really exponential engine gains in short order, but it's not coming from the team. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Very interesting. It, it is. You know, it is. Uh, you know, it's, it's also, I, I think you, you just, um, you know, hit on a good point there. I mean, former uh, Ferrari driver, Rennie Arnoux, he said uh, this week that uh, Ferrari is not going to perform what he called any miracles in, in in 2021. And, you know, based on what we saw in their decline over the 2019 season and the absolute fall into the abyss in the first, what, two thirds of last season. Right. I really struggle to see how they. I, I I expect them to improve, but I really struggle to see them to improve to the point that they're mixing it up again with Red Bull and Mercedes again on uh, on on a regular basis in 2021. That just seems like too much of a stretch, uh, you know. Considering this is a holdover year, these are basically the same cars from from last year. I mean, there's of course development going on. I mean, I'm exaggerating to a certain extent, but I you know I would tend to side more with the guys. Guys like Rennie Arnoux, who are, I, I think, being quite realistic uh, about their chances for, for, for this year. And that, you know, I, I think Arnoux has really nailed it. And just by calling it, you know, expecting a, a miracle to happen in 2021. 
And finally, this one I, I thought was interesting uh, because, uh, number one, I'm a fan of uh, Nigel Mansell. That's when I really got into Formula One when I was a kid, when uh, when Red 5. Uh, and that's why, you know, nothing against Sebastian Vettel. But to me in Formula One, the only number five, you know, deserves to be uh, Nigel Mansell. But I mean, Sebastian, uh, I've got a lot of respect for him, too. But the, the, the story that I thought was interesting was uh, titled, Grosjean could have the Mansell effect in IndyCar. And of course, Roman Grosjean out of Formula One going going to IndyCar for, for next year. And uh, I, I really struggle with this one a little bit. He's going to Dale Coyne Racing for, for next year. He's not going to race in the Oval events, but uh, it is, uh, you know, I, I think it's really interesting because, uh, you know, Coyne himself, Dale Coyne says that uh, it's about talent. And he says that uh, he feels, he gets the same feeling with Roma showing up as when Nigel Mansell went to IndyCar in the early to mid-1990s. And, well... I, I just cannot make that uh, that same you know parallel. I mean, Roman Grosjean is not Nigel Mansell. He's not a world champion. Never raced for a top team. And uh, Nigel, I love Nigel because he was a hard charger. He was a good driver, but maybe obviously not as talented or as great as Senna or Prost or some of the, the the big names of that. But I mean, I think what he maybe lacked a little bit in talent, he just made up for in just, uh, you know, in, in, in the courage and the determination and the fierceness of his uh, driving. And, th- and that's why I loved him for it. And uh, and I think if you go back to some of the classic Nigel Mansell moments and Mansell mania at uh, Silverstone in what, in, in 1992, I think it was, when he was literally swamped on Silverstone on the cool down lap uh, and, and you know basically had to stop the car so he wouldn't uh, you know run into any fans is you know was, was one of great uh, moments I you know, I wish Roman uh, you know was success in IndyCar I'm just uh, you know I, I just uh, considering you know the, the the number of guys that have raced in Formula One that have gone on to uh, to IndyCar you know <laughs> and have had success there I you know, I I just I can't go there I just can't go there guys I'm sorry I just can't do it. So let's be clear, the site, the reputable Formula One accredited website that published this article was planetf1.com. And it is absolutely, and I read it too because it caught my attention, but it is absolute clickbait of clickbait. And and here's why. When when Nigel Mansell made the transition from Formula One to Indy, he was the reigning champion. He won the driver's title in 92 for Williams. He then transitioned to the Newman Haas team, which was one of the absolute premier teams yep. in Indy at that time, where he then won another championship in the middle of his prime. Like that the comparisons aren't even apt. Like many drivers have made the transition from from Formula One to Indy, we've seen it even recently. This is probably one of the the less relevant examples. And again, I love Grosjean. <laughs> I hope he does well, but I think he's still in the media. And this sounds terrible. His relevancy increased with the incident in Bahrain, as as terrible as that sounds. And yeah. I think there's still a little his his name still reverberates a little bit. And I wish him nothing but the best. But I don't think stories like this are going to help him in in Indy because it's potentially going to create some unwanted and some unwarranted expectation. He's going to join a team that isn't expected to be ultra competitive in a series that sees a lot of parity, but to compare his transition to that of Nigel Mansell. And again, as a, as a world champion, Nigel Mansell brought an absolute mountain of cash with him in terms of sponsorship. I, I, I don't know that this is going to work for Grosjean because in the 90s in the UK, the entire market was hungry for open wheel racing. And one of the reasons it worked for IndyCar was because it brought 
the IndyCar package to British TV. So suddenly British viewers were watching IndyCar. I don't think French or continental European fans are going to start watching IndyCar because Grosjean's there. Terrible article. I'm happy for Grosjean. I'm super excited he's got a ride. I think it's smart that he's sitting out the ovals because they're extremely dangerous in that series. I just think this is a, a terribly unfair article in comparison. And that's just, just to be clear. <laughs> and that's just the top-notch, high-tier kind of story that we love discussing <laughs> on this show. But anyways, I, I think that, uh, you know, we can't go out, uh, we can't top that on this show. And I think uh, that's the perfect, well, maybe not the perfect way, but it is an end. It's an end to this show this week. So once again, guys, thank you so very much uh, for downloading and listening to the show, watching us on YouTube. If you want to help us, uh, you know, the easiest and quickest way, go on to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review, and that uh, helps us uh, grow the show. And we'd be much appreciative if, if you could do that for us. And if you want to get in touch and weigh in on anything that we've talked about, please do so on Twitter at ScooteriaF1Pod or send us a an email at uh, ScooteriaF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's it. That's a wrap. Thank you so very much for listening. We'll talk to you guys again this time next week. Bye for now. <laughs>